It is wonderful to be here this evening. It has been a fantastic week so far, and I hope that you have been a part of this gospel meeting thus far this week, that you have enjoyed yourselves and the time that we've had to spend with one another as Christians and to praise and worship our God in services like this. I uh, certainly have enjoyed the singing instructions in the morning uh, a lot and appreciate all the participation that has gone on thus far this week. If you're visiting this evening, we especially appreciate you being here and choosing to spend your Tuesday night uh, here at this congregation. And certainly we pray that the things that we study will be beneficial for you. Tonight, the title of the sermon is The Day the Fountain Was Opened. And this title comes out of a passage of scripture in Zechariah chapter 13 and verse 1 in which this prophet of the Old Testament makes this statement. He says, In that day there shall be a fountain opened to the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. And Zechariah is a prophet of God speaking to Israel, is prophesying of a day that was coming when God was going to allow mankind to be freed from the shackles of sin and death. That there was going to be a day in which sin and uncleanness was going to be done away with. And I want to talk to you tonight about that day. I want to tell you about a world that's in need of a savior. This world we live in today and the world that, that Jesus came into 2,000 years ago, it's very similar in the respect that all of us have, as people are in need of an eternal savior. You see, all of us have committed sin and we talked a little bit last night about Jesus being the door and the way to salvation, the way to safety. And I again want to ask you tonight to consider your own life. And the fact that all of us have rebelled against God at some point. Romans chapter 3 verse 23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6 and verse 23 tells us that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Isaiah 59 and verse 2 tells us that we have been separated by God because of our sin. Your iniquities have separated between you and your God. Your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. And so I want every single person in this building tonight to recognize the fact that we are sinful people. We are a part of a world that is in need of a savior. People that are separated from God that need to be restored. And Jesus came for that very purpose, to bring salvation to mankind. John chapter 1, 1 through 3 tells us that Jesus was there as the word from the beginning, creating all things along with God. And verse 14 tells us that the word was made flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the father, full of grace and truth. Jesus, as part of God, as God's son, came down to this earth to become a sacrifice for sin, to help us to be saved from the rebellious consequences or the consequences of our rebellion and of our sin before God. Jesus was sent to bring salvation to the world. And so I wanna zoom in on that day that day of salvation that Zechariah was prophesying about, that day in which Jesus was about to make the ultimate sacrifice for you and for me. You know, Jesus had been teaching for about three years and ministering to the people, performing miracles, teaching parables and doctrines of this new kingdom and new moral standard and all those things that Jesus taught. And the religious people of the day, they reject, rejected Jesus. They disagreed with the things that he taught because they were jealous, one, of his power and of the authority with which he spoke. But also they did not believe that he fit the expectation they had of a coming king. You see, the religious people, the Jews of that time, they thought that Jesus, or in this case, the Messiah, whoever that would have been, was going to come as a, a conquering soldier to bring glory back to Israel and to bring them out of captivity to Rome. And Jesus certainly didn't fit that bill. 
And so they rejected him and his teachings. Luke 19 and verse 47 says, He taught daily in the temple, but the chief priests and the scribes and the chief of the people, they sought to destroy him and could not find what they might do for all the people were very attentive to hear him. Mark chapter 8, verse 31 and 32, though these people, these chief priests and these scribes, these Jewish leaders, they sought to destroy Jesus. I want us to look at the attitude that Jesus had. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he spake that saying openly. And Peter took him and began to rebuke him. I want us to recognize here that Jesus knew what was coming. That Jesus, as God made flesh, came down to this earth And on that last and final day of his life here, of course, before his resurrection, he knew what was coming. He knew that he was about to die. And he told his disciples, this has to happen. It must come to pass. Because he was doing it for them. And he was doing it for you and I. John chapter 10 and verse 17, Jesus said, Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my father. You know, many people, when they think about Jesus, they think about him being taken by the Romans and crucified on that cross and that his life was taken from him. What I want you to know this evening is that his life was not taken from him. His life was willingly laid down and given. Jesus said, I have the power to lay down my life. I have the power to take it up again. I have the power to stop this at any time. But Jesus was ready and willing to die. In Matthew chapter 26 and verse 14, it says, Then one of the twelve called Judas Iscariot went unto the chief priests and said unto them, What will you give me and I will deliver him, Jesus, unto you? And they covenanted with him for thirty pieces of silver. And from that time he sought opportunity to betray him. Now Judas was one of Jesus' followers. In fact, Judas had been following Jesus around for three years. In the book of John, John tells us that Judas was actually a thief. He carried the money bag for the disciples, and every once in a while, he would put his hand into that bag, and he would steal from the group's money. He had a problem with greed and with lust for money. And so he sees an opportunity to make money at Jesus' expense, and he goes to these Jewish leaders who had rejected Christ, and he said, what will you give me if I turn him into you? And they said, 30 pieces of silver. And they shook on it and went, went their way, and he looked from that time on for an opportunity to betray Jesus. Maybe Judas believed based on all of the miracles and things that he had witnessed, that Jesus would be able to escape any harm. But regardless of his intentions, one of Jesus' own followers for those three years looked for that opportunity. Now in John chapter 13, we have here what, is what we refer to as the Last Supper, where Jesus is sitting in an upper room with his disciples. John chapter 13 and verse 4 says, He riseth from supper and laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. And after that he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. Now a few days before this, Jesus had ridden into Jerusalem for the last time. If you remember that story, the people laid palm branches down and they cried Hosanna before him. But now he's a day removed from his crucifixion. At this last supper where he's sitting in this room with his disciples, he instituted the communion service that we participate in every Sunday. And then he, began, he got down on his knees and he began to wash all of his disciples' feet. Now that sounds strange and weird to us today because it's not part of our cultural practice to get down and wash each other's feet. But this was an act of service and love. And Jesus showed this service and love to every single one of his disciples, including Judas the man who he knew was going to betray him. And I just think that's an extremely amazing act of love and compassion in the face of a coming betrayal. That's something that's contrary to human nature, but it shows the love of God in Christ Jesus. 
In verse 21 of that same chapter, and Jesus had thus said, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, verily, verily, I say unto you that one of you shall betray me. Then the disciples looked one on another, doubting of whom he spoke. Now think about this for a moment. Jesus is sitting there in that room with these 12 men who had followed him for three years, and he makes this statement, one of you is going to betray me. And you know all of them are looking at each other going, what? What is he saying? What is he talking about? We've been listening to this man for three years. We've seen him do miracles. We've listened to the parables, the teachings, all of this. One of us is going to betray him. Peter actually nudges John, who is next to Jesus, and tells him to ask Jesus who it is. So John asks him, and Jesus says this. Jesus answered, he it is to whom I shall give a sop when I have dipped it. And when he had dipped the sop, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. And after the sop, Satan entered into him. And then said Jesus unto him, that thou doest, do quickly. Now a sop here is simply a morsel of bread. Judas has already agreed to betray Jesus for those 30 pieces of silver. He's just looking for an opportunity. And now Jesus has washed Judas's feet. He has looked him in the eye and he has told him, I know what you're about to do. He said, what you're going to do, go do quickly. And Judas, knowing that Jesus knew that he was about to betray him, still chose to go and do that. Now some people say, that Satan entered into him, and this was possession, and Satan possessed Judas, and Judas had no control in the situation, but I don't believe that. I believe Judas allowed Satan into his heart through probably the greed problem he had already established that he had had, and he allowed Satan to come in, and he chose to go and betray Jesus for this money, this blood money. After Judas left, Jesus and the other disciples went to the Garden of Gethsemane, which was a garden at the base of the Mount of Olives. And in Luke 22, verse 41, it says, As he was withdrawn from them about a stone's cast, and he kneeled down and prayed, saying, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Now, in the New Testament, Jesus frequently went here to pray. But this time, he leaves his disciples alone, and he goes off by himself to pray to God. And he prayed this prayer that if God was willing, that he would remove this cup from him. Now what Jesus is referring to is this sacrifice on the cross that he was about to endure. And Jesus is asking God if there's any other way for us to save mankind, if there's any other way for us to do this without me having to go through what I'm about to go through, please let it be another way. He prayed this prayer three times to God. And I want us to recognize that though Jesus was 100% God, he was also 100% human. And he felt the same anxiety and fear that you and I would in that situation, knowing that our death was about to take place. But notice that he kept his focus on God's will and not his own. And he said, your will be done. Luke chapter 22, verse 44 says, And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was as it were great drops of blood falling to the ground. Now Luke says Jesus was in agony, but notice that he has not been whipped, he has not been beaten, There have been no nails that have pierced his hands or his feet. He is not hanging on a cross. This agony that Jesus is in is not physical one. It's not a physical pain. It is a mental and emotional agony that Jesus is dealing with and feeling based upon what he knows is about to come. Some say that this reference to great drops of blood as sweat was as great drops of blood is simply saying that Jesus was sweating profusely. And it's just an illustration. And that perhaps may be the truth. But there is a medical condition called uh, hemotidrosis where this actually takes place when a person is under extreme physical or emotional distress, the capillaries that feed their sweat glands can burst and blood can mingle in with their sweat as it comes out of their skin. And it's interesting to me that the gospel writer that includes this description is Luke, who was a physician. 
regardless of what you believe this to be, I think it shows us the level of stress and anxiety that Jesus was feeling. Matthew 26 and verse 47, Jesus is in this garden. He's praying. He's in agony. He's fearful. And then Judas makes an appearance. And while he yet spake, lo, Judas, one of the twelve, came, and with him a great multitude with swords and staves from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now he that betrayed him gave them a sign, saying, Whomsoever I shall kiss, that same as he, hold him fast. And forthwith he came to Jesus and said, Hail, Master, and kissed him. Jesus in this garden, after praying these, these prayers and being in such mental and emotional agony, he sees Judas, his friend for three years, with Roman soldiers and Jewish leaders behind him. And Judas approaches him and kisses him. The ultimate sign of betrayal, because a kiss is something that someone does to a friend, someone that they love. And Judas uses this sign to betray him. Verse 55 of Matthew 26, In that same hour said Jesus to the multitudes, Are you come out as against a thief with swords and staves for to take me? I sat daily with you teaching in the temple, and you laid no hold on me. But all this was done that the scripture of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples forsook him and fled. Those Roman soldiers and Jewish leaders come and they arrest Jesus. Now Peter tries to defend him and he cuts the servant of the high priest's ear off. But Jesus stops him and tells Peter to put away his sword and he heals this man's ear. And then Jesus looks around and he looks into the faces of these Jewish leaders, of these Roman soldiers, and the faces in the crowd of people that daily he had sat with in the temple. People that had listened to him teach that had witnessed some of the great things that he had done. And he looks at this crowd in the eyes and he says, have you come out to take me with swords as if I'm a thief, a common criminal? And you can feel the pain of the betrayal that Jesus is feeling, not only from Judas, but from all of these crowds, all of these people that at once, one time had listened to him and now they're coming to watch as he's being arrested. But then it gets worse. You see, Judas gets a bad reputation for betraying Jesus. And we know that Peter would go on to deny Jesus three times. But notice what verse 56 tells us. Then all the disciples forsook him and fled. And Jesus was absolutely, utterly, and completely alone. Not a single person that stayed faithful to him and stayed by his side. And he is completely alone. Verse 57, they that had laid hold on Jesus led him away to Caiaphas the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were assembled. But Peter followed him afar off into the high priest's palace and went in and sat with the servants to see the end. Now the chief priests and the elders and all the council sought false witnesses against Jesus to put him to death. So they take hold of Jesus in the garden and they lead him to Caiaphas, who is the current high priest at that time of the Jews. Now John mentions that they brought him before Annas as well, who was the former high priest. Caiaphas seems to have wanted Annas' approval for what he was about to do to Jesus and seems to have gotten it. Peter follows along behind at a distance to watch what would happen to Jesus. But of course, we know that eventually he will betray Jesus and deny that he knew him. So here is Jesus alone, and he's brought before the Sanhedrin council. This was the first trial of the night that Jesus was put through, the Jewish trial. And these Jews set up false witnesses to speak lies about him. One said that Jesus had said he was going to destroy the temple and then rebuild it in three days. Of course, we know Jesus was talking about his body not those four walls and a roof. But the high priest then begins to ask Jesus questions, and Jesus sits there silently and will not answer. But Jesus held his peace, and the high priest answered and said to them, I adjure thee by the living God that thou tell us whether thou be the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus saith unto him, Thou hast said. Nevertheless, I say unto you, Hereafter shall you see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest rent his clothes, saying, He hath spoken blasphemy. 
What further need have we of witnesses? Behold, now you have heard his blasphemy. What think you? And they answered and said, he is guilty of death. Now that thou hast said there is King James for Jesus saying, yes, you are right. I am the Christ, the son of God. And then he says, it won't be long until you see me at the throne of God and you see me coming in power in the clouds. And that was enough. The high priest had what he wanted, an excuse to put Jesus to death. They considered that blasphemy. Verse 67 says, then they did spit in his face and buffeted him. And others smote him with the palms of their hands, saying, Prophesy unto us, thou Christ, who is he that smote thee? And now this emotional and mental agony that Jesus has been feeling at this night, knowing what's coming, it has begun to turn into physical pain and suffering. These people stood behind him or blindfolded him and began to beat him and spit upon him and mock him. And as they're beating on Jesus, they're mocking him, saying, If you're really the Christ, then tell us who's hitting you. But Jesus did not get angry. He did not strike back. He did not yell curses at them. He sat there and he took it without complaint. Matthew 27 verse 1 says, When the morning was come, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And when they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. Now after the Jews had had their mock trial in the middle of the night and deemed him worthy of death, they brought him to the Romans. Because you see, the Romans were the rule of law in the land. And in order to crucify Jesus, they had to have Roman permission. And specifically, they brought him to this Roman governor, the prefect of Judea, Pontius Pilate. Pilate realizes that Jesus is from Galilee. And so he decides to send him over to King Herod, who was the tetrarch or the leader over that region that covered Galilee. And so Pilate decides to let Herod deal with Jesus. Now Herod had wanted to meet Jesus for some time and to see some miracles. And so he asked Jesus to perform miracles for him. And Jesus would not. And so he mocked him, and he sent him back to Pilate. And so Pilate would then begin his examination of Jesus. In John 18 and verse 33, Then Pilate entered into the judgment hall again and called Jesus and said unto him, Art thou the king of the Jews? Now this is a simple question that Pilate asks Jesus, but it's an important one for Rome. You see, if there is a king planning a rebellion against Rome, then Pilate's going to put him to death because Pilate cares about Rome's interest. And Rome's interest is making sure that there's no rebellions that rise up against Rome. And so Pilate asks him this simple question. Are you the king of the Jews? Now listen to Jesus' answer. In verse 36, Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight, that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence. Pilate therefore said unto him, Art thou a king then? And Jesus answered, Thou sayest that I am a king. To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. Pilate saith unto him, What is truth? So again, that's King James when Jesus answered and says, Thou sayest that I am a king. That's King James for Jesus saying, Yes, you say rightly that I am a king. But he says, It's not the kind of king that you think. My kingdom is not a physical one. Jesus said, I did not come with an army. I did not come to try to overthrow Rome. I did not come to establish physical borders of a kingdom. Jesus said, I came for a different purpose. My kingdom is a spiritual one. And so Pilate then approaches the crowd and he delivers his decision. Pilate, when he had called together the chief priests and the rulers of the people, said unto them, you have brought this man unto me as one that perverted the people. And behold, I having examined him before you have found no fault in this man, touching those things whereof you accuse him. No, nor yet Herod, for I sent you to him, and lo, nothing worthy of death is done unto him. I will therefore chastise him and release him. Pilate said, all of y'all's accusations are false. I found no reason to put this man to death. 
He's innocent of the charges. He says, but to, to make you happy, I'll beat him, I'll chastise him, I'll whip him, and then I'm going to release him because he's not worthy of death. But listen to what the Jews say in response. And they cried out all at once, saying, Away with this man, and release unto us Barabbas, who for a certain sedition made in the city and for murder was cast into prison. Pilate, therefore willing to release Jesus, spake again to them. But they cried, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. Now there was a, a tradition there to release a prisoner. And Barabbas was a murderer, a known murderer. And the Jews preferred them to release Barabbas back into them instead of Jesus, and cried, for the crucifixion of this innocent man. Pilate tried again to convince them to just release Jesus, but their cries for crucifixion were too loud. He said unto them the third time, Why? What evil hath he done? I have found no cause of death in him. I will therefore chastise him and let him go. And they were instant with loud voices, requiring that he might be crucified. And the voices of them and of the chief priests prevailed. A third time, Pilate tries to get away with beating him and releasing him, but the Jews wouldn't have it. And Pilate finally gives in to the mob. Verse 26 of Matthew 27, Then released he Barabbas unto them, and when he had scourged to Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Now just before this, Pilate brought a basin of water out before him. And in front of all of those Jews and all of those people, he washed his hands in that basin of water, and he said, I am innocent of the blood of this righteous man. Now perhaps this was done to clear his conscience, I'm not sure that he's truly innocent of that decision that was made that day, but he wanted them to know that this decision was on them. And the Jews responded with, his blood be upon us and on our children. That is the hate that they had in their heart for Jesus. That's the level of contempt that they had for him. And so Pilate delivers Jesus to be crucified. And in Matthew 27, 28, it says they stripped him and they put on him a scarlet robe. And when they had plaited a crown of thorns, they put it upon his head and a reed in his right hand, and they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit upon him and took the reed and smote him on the head. And after that they had mocked him, they took the robe off from him and put on his own raiment on him and led him away to crucify him. Jesus was beaten, he was whipped, he was torn apart physically before he ever touched the cross. When they put that crown of thorns on his head, they did not lay it on his head gently. They beat it onto his skull. And so those renditions that you see where blood was trickling down his forehead probably was very accurate. And his back was full of lashes, gashes, from where that cat of nine tails had hit him over and over and over, ripping his flesh apart. And all the while, Jesus did not curse them. He did not get angry at them. He did not try to get revenge. He took it. Every single beating, every lashing, every whip. They mocked him. They spat upon him. And they led him away to put him on that cross. John 19 verse 17 says, And he bearing his cross went forth into a place called the place of a skull, which is called in the Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side, or on either side one, and Jesus in the midst. Now in this state of physical and emotional and mental agony that Jesus is in, he has this cross placed upon his back that he is supposed to carry from the distance of the city to Golgotha where they would crucify him. Jesus gets partway along this journey and he can no longer carry it. And so the Roman soldiers got Simon of Cyrene to carry the cross for Jesus the rest of the way. And most likely when they reached the place where they would crucify Jesus, they would have laid that cross down. And then they would have laid Jesus down on his back on top of that cross, putting big, long, thick nails through his feet and through both wrists so that 
these bones here would be able to bear the weight of his body as they brought that cross up and had a hole in the ground already dug. And then they would have dropped to that cross with Jesus nailed to it into that hole with a thud. And just that fall into that hole in the ground would have caused intense pain for our Savior. Luke 23 and verse 34, Then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus is looking at the soldiers who nailed his hands and his feet. He's looking at the Jews who cried, Crucify him, his blood be upon us and, his ch and, and our children. He's looking at all of the disciples that forsook him and fled. He's looking at every single one of them, and he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He showed a spirit of love and forgiveness towards those that were responsible for his death. And that's the amazing perspective of a Savior who cared about humanity, you and I, that much. To endure all of this and still have the attitude of asking God to forgive us. Now I want to ask you to put yourself in that place. And if you had been beaten and whipped and cruelly placed on a cross to die for things that you had not done... Would you say a prayer to God in that moment asking forgiveness for those that had done it to you? But that's what Jesus did because he knew that you and I needed him, that we needed that forgiveness, that we needed that sacrifice. Verse 39 of Luke 23, one of the malefactors which were hanged railed on him saying, If thou be the Christ, save thyself and us. But the other answering rebuked him saying, Dost not thou fear God, seeing that thou art in the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man hath done nothing a mess. Jesus has been betrayed, humiliated, tortured, but now even the criminal next to him is mocking and tormented. But this thief on the cross, this other criminal, recognized that Jesus was a just man, a righteous, and was not deserving of what was being done to him. And so he asked Jesus a question in verse 42. He said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. This thief on the cross that defended him was given the promise of salvation that day. Now, we talked last night about the plan of salvation. We talked about in Jesus' own words how he said we could have entrance into that ark of safety, how we could be saved from our sins and have the promise of heaven, and that Jesus said we had to believe in him, we had to be willing to confess him before men, we had to be willing to stop sinning, to repent, to change and to submit to him, and that we had to be willing to be baptized and have our sins washed away. And so many times people read this account of this thief on the cross and they say, how is it that this man could be saved? having not followed that process that Jesus laid out in Scripture. And some people who want to find a reason that baptism is not a part of the salvation process will say, this man wasn't baptized, and yet he was saved. And there's a couple of things that I think we need to think about as it relates to this. One, John the Baptist had been baptizing for many years, and there's no way for us to know whether or not this man had been baptized or not. One. Number two, I want you to remember that Jesus' new law and the plan of salvation came into effect at his death. And at this point... Jesus is still alive. But most importantly of all, I want you to remember who Jesus was. Jesus was God made flesh. And throughout Jesus' three years of ministry, he looked many people in the eye and told them they were forgiven of their sin and they were saved. You know why he could do that? Because he's, he's God. And Jesus could have chosen whoever he wanted to save them in any moment. And so he looks at this man who's defending him, who says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he says, today you'll be in paradise. When Jesus therefore saw his mother, and the disciple standing by whom he loved, he saith unto his mother, Woman, behold thy son. And then saith he to the disciple, Behold thy mother. And from that hour the disciple took her unto his own home. And I want us to consider the fact that as Jesus is here, he's got the sins of the world on his shoulders. He's in mental, emotional, and physical extreme agony. He looks down and he sees his mom. 
And despite everything that he is feeling, everything that he is dealing with, the weight of the world literally on his shoulders, he looks at John and he says, John, behold your mom. And he looks at his mom and he says, mom, behold your son. And that was Jesus saying, John, take care of her. And from that point on, John took Mary into his home and took care of her as if she was his mom. And it's amazing to me that at the end of Jesus' life, as he is feeling all the things that he's feeling, that he cares that deeply about his mom. And we see the humanity, but also the love of God. And it's a great example to us to appreciate those that are important to us in our life, like a good godly mother. In verse 45 of Matthew 27, it says, Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land under the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is to say, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Now the sixth of the ninth hour was 12 p.m. to 3 p.m., according to Jewish time. This was afternoon. This was not supposed to be dark. In the afternoon, the sun is out and it's shining. But a spectacular darkness fills the sky. You know, we don't have time to get into it, but I want you to know that secular sources outside of Scripture back up the fact that this darkness exists. You can ask me about that later if you'd like. But this darkness was real. For three hours in the middle of the day, there was extreme darkness. And I believe ultimately this was the reaction of the creation to the death of its creator. But Jesus makes this statement, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And many people think about this and they wonder about this statement. One, I believe that yes, he was human and he was in agony, he was feeling all of those things. But I think there's a more important reason why he made this statement. In Psalm 22 and verse 1, the very first verse says, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And then Psalm 22 goes on to describe a prophetic description of the suffering Savior. And as the Jews who knew Scripture heard Jesus on the cross cry out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? They would have gone to Psalm 22.1. And that's the connection that would have been made in their brain. And that entire psalm is devoted to the suffering of that Savior, of that Messiah that was to come. And that, I believe, was Jesus' way of confirming to them in their minds, I am the one that Psalm 22 was written about. In John 19.28, says, After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, and that the scripture might be fulfilled, saith, I thirst. Now there was a set, there was set a vessel full of vinegar, and they filled a sponge with vinegar and put it upon hyssop and put it to his mouth. And when Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up the ghost. It is finished. These three words symbolize everything that Jesus was sent here to do. And he was letting all of them and all of us know that his mission was accomplished. He had become the Lamb of God. He had become the sacrifice for sin, the substitution for the death that you and I deserve, and he took it himself. He became a bridge to God that we could climb to get back to God. Verse 51 of Matthew 27 says, Behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom, and the earth did quake, and the rocks rent, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints which slept arose, and he came and came out of the graves after his resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared unto many. Now, as we think about the temple and this veil, I want you to remember that in this temple, this veil separated the holy place from the most holy place. And this most holy place in the temple was an area that was reserved for God exclusively. And only once a year was the high priest allowed to enter into this most holy place. And this veil was essentially a symbol of the separation that existed because of sin between us and God. And when Jesus gave his life on that cross and he died at that moment, that veil of the temple was torn. But this veil was not a sheet. 
It was not this thin. In fact, when you look at it, most people will say it was probably about four inches thick. And what's even more amazing was that it was ripped from the top down. As if some giant person grabbed it from the top and went. And essentially, that's what happened. As God ripped that veil in two symbolizing that now Jesus as that Lamb of God, as that substitution for our sin, that bridge to God, there is no longer that need for separation. Now it is not a high priest that is a man that's gonna walk into that that most holy place on behalf of us and sprinkle blood on the altar. That's not gonna happen anymore. Instead, that veil is torn down and we have access through the high priest, Jesus Christ. Access to God, every single one of us. This was further proof along with the darkness, the earthquakes, the rocks tearing apart, the graves that were opened, dead people that were walking around now alive, all of these things were evidence and sign for the people that this man Jesus that they had just crucified was truly the Son of God. Now when the centurion and they that were with him watching Jesus saw the earthquake and those things that were done, they feared greatly, saying truly this was the Son of God. Now if those who had taken active part in his crucifixion saw those things and believed in Jesus then what must those Jewish leaders and the disciples have been thinking in that moment? This is truly the Son of God. And I want to ask you this evening, who do you believe that Jesus is? Who do you believe that he was? You see, these scriptures that we have read tonight, they paint a picture of the love and compassion that God had for you and for me. Not wanting to leave us in our sin and the consequences of that sin, but wanting to provide a way for us to be saved. And they accomplished that through Jesus' death on the cross. Do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus was sent here for you and for me? Do you believe that he died on that cross knowing that doing that would allow you and me to live eternally? And I do. I believe that with all my heart. And I hope that tonight as we've read through this story, and it's not over, but as we've read through this story, I hope that you, like that centurion, will believe and say truly, this was the Son of God. 1 John 2 verse 2 says, He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And I want you to know tonight that no matter who you are, no matter where you come from, no matter how old you are, old or young, that Jesus died for you. That he made that ultimate sacrifice and suffered through all of that so that you could be saved and I could be saved. And there is nothing that anyone can do to stop you from having the salvation that Jesus wants you to have, except for you. You're the only one that can say no. And if you're here tonight, I want you to ask yourself seriously if you've said yes to Jesus or if you're still saying no, because the time is now to take advantage of the greatest gift that has ever been given, and that's the substitution that Jesus is willing to make in taking your sin and giving you his righteousness. In Matthew 27, 64, after Jesus' death, they took his body down off the cross and they put it into a tomb. And in verse 64, Pilate says, Command, therefore, that the sepulcher... Uh, or rather these are the Jews that have, have come to Pilate. And they're asking Pilate, command therefore that the sepulcher be made sure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say unto the people, he is risen from the dead. So the last error shall be worse than the first. And Pilate said unto them, you have a watch. Go your way and make it as sure as you can. So they went and made the sepulcher sure, sealing the stone and setting a watch. Now Jesus for three years had been preaching and teaching and saying that he was going to be killed and that three days later he was going to rise from the grave and the Jews knew this. And they were so determined and so dedicated to their vendetta vendetta against Jesus that after Jesus' body was placed in that tomb, they went to Pilate and said, give us Roman soldiers to set at the tomb to make sure 
that there's no foul play, that the disciples of Jesus don't come and try to steal his body and pretend that he's risen from the grave. And so Pilate says, all right, you got it. And so they set Roman soldiers there at the tomb. They sealed the tomb. They put that Roman seal on it. And that was punishable by death to mess with that. And that was a warning to anyone to stay away. And so the Jews got what they wanted. Jesus surely was going to stay dead and their problem was going to be removed. Unfortunately, they were wrong. Matthew 28 verse one, it says, at the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to see the sepulcher. And behold, there was a great earthquake for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. His countenance was like lightning and his raiment white as snow. And for fear of him, the keepers did shake and became as dead men. And the angel answered and said to the woman, fear or women, fear not ye, for I know that ye seek Jesus, which was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen. Now these women are coming to prepare the body of Jesus, to put spices on the body. And as they get there, there's a great earthquake and an angel comes down. And notice these Roman soldiers, these keepers, who had been put there to make sure there's no foul play and nothing weird that happens, they became as dead men. Now, either they literally fainted out of fear or they decided our best bet is to play possum and pretend we're dead. But one way or the other, they're laying on the ground. And this angel comes down and speaks to these women and says, I know why you're here. You're seeking Jesus, but he's not here. Because like he said many times that he would do, he is risen from the grave and he has new life. And in Matthew 28, 18, Jesus would appear to his disciples. He would appear to over 500 people at once. He appeared to many, many people to prove that he truly was resurrected from the grave and had new life. And he came before his disciples in Matthew 28 and he said, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. And I want you to know tonight that Jesus has all power in heaven and in earth today. That he is reigning as Lord and King of an eternal kingdom right now today. That he is king and he is Lord. And this kingdom is not a physical one. It's not one that comes with observation. Luke, Luke recorded Jesus saying, we can't say low here, low there. We can't see the borders of the kingdom because it expands upon the entire earth. It's inclusive of all people, of all races who have obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ and have been saved by his blood. And you can be a part of that family tonight. You can serve the living risen savior tonight because there's coming a day when he is going to return for his church. He's gonna return for those that are his. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 17, or verse 16 rather says, for the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. There is coming a day when this risen king that is reigning over this eternal kingdom right now, he's gonna come back. And we talked a little bit about that day last night. And the fear that that day will strike in those who are not prepared. But if you tonight have said yes to Jesus, have obeyed that gospel of Christ and been washed by the blood of Jesus, then you don't have to fear it. You can be excited for that day to come and you can look forward to that day when all of us gather together in the clouds with Jesus to ascend to heaven forever. Tonight you have an opportunity to make the greatest decision that you will ever make in your life. I hope that as we have studied this story of Jesus and what he did for you and did for me, that it has impacted you tonight. But I hope it has impacted you enough for you to do something about it. Because the easiest thing for you to do right now is to stay in your seat as we sing and walk out those doors and ignore what Jesus did for you. But the most powerful and wonderful thing you can do for yourself and for your family and for generations after you is to say yes to the gift that Jesus is offering and to become a part of his family today 
And if you want to do that and we can help you with that, then just make it known to us. Come to the front as we stand and sing this song. Wait.